Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. In Mark Ernest Pothier's devastating and life-affirming novel, Outer Sunset, San Francisco in the early 2000s is the backdrop to a family that has been unwinding and fraying for some time. When our narrator, Jim Finley's wife, leaves him after years of a seemingly loving marriage in which the two raised children together, he's stunned and set adrift. What had seemed a constant in his life in San Francisco was now a pressing darkness in his latter years. Jim begins seeing a friend of his daughter Dorothy's, but Jim's life is upended when Dorothy learns that she has an advanced form of pancreatic cancer, likely to end her life in months, if not sooner. Thus begins one of the most tender-hearted explorations of family, illness, and home that you will likely read anytime soon. Family in all of its forms and constructions, its messiness and discomfort is on display in Outer Sunset's lushly imagined world. The layered psychological portrait of a man in his last quarter life asks us to consider the judgments we impose on others, the constraints and limits we apply to our dreams and desires, and the necessity of giving up control to truly live and love fully in the despoiled and radiant now. There are few novels that have walked this far into the mouth of grief while preserving the humanity of their characters, and Outer Sunset was indeed a revelation to me. (laughs) Mark's work has won a Nelson Algren Short Story Award, has been long-listed for the Pirate Sally Faulkner William Wisdom Prize, and has been published in the Chicago Tribune, Lit Hub, Santa Clara Review, 
Connotation Press, Kindle Singles, and elsewhere. Mark grew up in western Massachusetts and New York's North Country, earned a BA from St. John's College in Annapolis, and moved to San Francisco in 1987, where he earned an MFA from San Francisco State. He worked nearly 30 years in nonprofit communications, including a wonderful spell with the California Council for the Humanities. He lives with his wife and kids in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you very much, Chris. That's a that's a lovely introduction. I appreciate it. This novel had a had a long and winding road to completion and and publication. Could you outline for us a little bit of its genesis and how it evolved into the book that we have before us now? Absolutely. Um, it began with the uh, the sh- a short story that what did win that Nelson Algren Prize hit. Uh, that I completed in 1994. Um, so that was my first published story, and it was the uh, that's the uh, the first chapter in the book now, and that's it, the it, the entire story grew out of that. Um, the, the the interesting story behind it is that for, was an assignment in one of my MFA workshops to write a um, you know a kind of a knotted moment uh, from two points of view. And in that case, it was the, the hug of the father and the son that you see in the first few pages. Hmm. And I, um, uh, was much more in the, uh, son's head. I wrote this when I was 30 and, um, that voice was not, you know, the story just didn't move. There was no life to it. But when I sat down and started writing father's point of view, it just flowed. And, um, I remember my instructor, uh, Michelle Carter state, said, oh, why aren't you doing this? And I said, well, mm-hmm. because it's the old guy. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> and, uh, but it turned out, you know, uh, 30 years later, I've lived through a lot of uh, what I imagined that man had. And certainly my perspective changed from having had children of my own and raised them and facing off with a lot of uh, older uh, people's stuff, you know. And uh, um, that's why, uh, you know, we're. it's not like I've been writing that novel for 30 years, but I certainly have been evolving into the perspective that I could, you know, what uh, Flannery O'Connor calls achieve fiction, you know, it had to, to be, um, had to become art eventually. And so that's, that's, that's kind of how that grew. I, when I started it, uh, I, I would say I wrote the, the rest of the book in about four years. Mm. And uh, started that oh, about six years ago. So, did you have to um, go back to any any moments um, in Jim's head and say, "Oh, that's just this is sort of unrealistic for someone of this age," and that was just my young, my young frame of reference? You know, it, it, do you mean in terms of that original story? Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. In fact, oh, the story hey. was uh, it's uh, was purchased by. Um, uh, Dave Blum at Amazon for one of their first Kindle singles when they had begun that program, I think, uh, 10 years ago or so. And they wanted to, um, bring literary fiction into e-readers and that's what they, they published that one. And it's very close to what you see now. I had to make a few changes to bring the children forward more and to bring out Carol and to actually leave a little more forward lane because the story was very self-enclosed. Um, Mm -hmm as it was, but now, you know, uh, there's a, you can see that, you know, the, the genesis, the seed of most of the story in the novel is there in that short story, that chapter. 
Outer Sunset is a novel of place, the far edge of San Francisco, the actual neighborhood Outer Sunset, a once quiet and, and perhaps somewhat ignored neighborhood that I imagine now is um, quite far from that. Yeah. So no, the novel is, uh, in, in one way, a song of praise to a city that has changed perhaps more than any other in the United States. But yeah. Jim isn't blind to the problems. There's homelessness and drug use, but it is a place that is powerfully his home. How mm -hmm. does San Francisco, at this very specific moment of time in the novel, um, make meaning for you here? Oh, boy. I could go on so much about our city. Um, I've lived here since 87, so it's almost 35 years, certainly more of my life than not. And um, we don't live in the outer sunset. We live in the outer Richmond now, but it's these are neighborhoods far to the west. And when I first came to the city, you know, my wife and I moved to North Beach because we were going to be writers and that was a cool thing to do and be there. <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was always foggier and colder out here. It was a little less, um, you know, there was, it seemed a little rougher. You could be a little seedy. I have many friends now who've grown up out here and told me, you know, there's some of the places, especially outer reaches of Golden Gate Park, and sometimes even the, the beach, uh, Ocean Beach, could be a little dicey for kids and especially girls. But um, it's changed so much because of money. Um, what I really took away from writing this story was, first of all, it's a perfect place to stage this man's story. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the, in fact, the place gave me story quite often. There were things that happened that I just said, I'm not sure why, but let's, let's put this in. We'll find out later. Um, uh, to write it at, you know, it's the, the setting is 1999. It's just before Y2K, um, which people were actually anxious about, if you recall. Oh yeah. Yeah. Something was, was going to end everything. <laughs> down, down would go the financial system and we'd all be, you know, bartering for coffee beans or something. Exactly. Exactly. And for, you're right about coffee beans too. Um, so, uh, to see what life was like before we have these devices where you couldn't communicate with anyone quickly and you couldn't find out the weather. You couldn't know if it was going to be foggy if you hopped on a bus and took the 45-minute ride out to the, the West. You know, um, that, was, that informed a lot. To, I, I just, it reminded me of how we used to communicate with each other and how much you relied on a phone call or a conversation or um, chance. Uh, so, but what's really, I think that there's so many narratives that are built around San Francisco, so many myths, so many, um, we brand ourselves so many. In fact, there's actually a, a branding war right now going on in the city with one group saying, you know, we're this, where it all starts here. Someone else is saying, no, we need to develop and bring back the silicon, you know, the, the, the tech money, et cetera. There's, there's a, a thousand different ways to go. But I think the, the real stressor has always been in San Francisco, aside from the fact that many things are uh, flexible and have to be because we live on shaky ground is money. Mm -hmm. It's just money comes into the city in such floods so suddenly it's transformational. And, you know, uh, my wife works in the school district um, and we, you know, we, our kids went through it too. We, you see the stressors on families there um, or just having lived here, you know, ourselves because of this kind of, you know, suddenly you can't afford to I mean, we'll, we still are renters and it's because of rent control that we're able to stay here. But just as we get close enough to like, okay, now we can maybe buy something. You're like, well, no, it actually just tripled, you know? Mm. Um, and that, that's, there's, 
there's just so much to explore with how that affects people, everyday life, stability, relationships. You know, when you have friends just moving out, you know, far away, all of a sudden, you know, or or the I've seen marriages hurt so badly over money. Um, if you become unemployable because your skill set is now obsolete, or you have a new skill set and you're suddenly making, you know, three times what you're used to, it's a it's a remarkable, really dramatic, and um, it can be a little scary, but you know, I think. It, it, certain people are able to stay and that, and I, I love those people. So, hmm. well, it's, uh, I, it made me want to go back to San Francisco reading it and, and to explore, um, places that I had loved in my youth. But as you say, it really is a kind of place that is, is almost like a pressure cooker for things yeah. that kind of capital does in, in the world. And they yeah. happen faster and more intensely in the, uh, in, in the city. Um, so Jim is divorced, but he starts a relationship with a woman named Carol, who is a chain smoking would be social worker who's quite close with his daughter. Mm. They are seemingly a quite a poor fit temperamentally in their interests and in their ways of being in the world. It's a, I might call it an anti-romantic relationship with mm. the exception of their immense shared love and their willingness to support. Uh, Jim's daughter, Dorothy. Mm -hmm. It's rather daring to write such an unromantic relationship. Could you talk to us about this peculiar but fascinating relationship between Jim and Carol? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a great question. Uh, that's come up in a couple of places. You know, that people, it's not, you know, they said, what is his attraction to her? It's not really clear, you know, that it's something sexual, but there's definitely an emotional component. If you look at Jim um, and you see, uh, I mean, he changes certainly through the story, but he's not, um, he's very much in his head so much so that he, he rarely even will complain about a headache, a hangover, a pain in the toe, nothing. He never, he's almost out of body. If you think mm. about it, he's very observant and he's very, he's thinking while he's observing. And he's so, this is a man who spent far too much time, you know, um, on the interior. And, um, but with Carol, um, who to me is she's she's those things that you mentioned, but she's also she brings music uh, into his life. She brings some flexibility and some connections between the spaces where I think um, he gets lost. And that relationship is mostly a conversation that get, gets better and better for me. Um, and they they draw closer and closer together. She um, th there's a I don't want to, it's not ruining the story, I suppose. It's not that kind of story, but they meet uh, toward the end at her apartment when he has, he's, he's really adrift. I mean, eventually he'll run through every version of the world that he can think up uh, for himself and find that there's still a lack. And the conversation he has with her at her apartment the day she's working and can't really spend too much time, that's a big one for me because I think that he's, he's, he's really meeting someone directly. Um, he quotes, uh, I think in that, yeah, he quotes a, a Wallace Stephen line or two, and she understands that they, they are very uh, intellectually compatible. And they also, without him knowing it fully, they have a lot of similarities in their story. Um, we don't know a lot of how her, her, her marriage ended, you know, but it's, you can guess that they, they would have more to talk about. 
And I, I would say the the moment in which I thought, okay, these are both, you know, people who are intellectuals and they have these intense passions. But I thought, is this ever going to work? Was when they're at City Lights Books and mm. there is a Ferlinghetti uh, reading that's, yes. that's going to happen. And Jim just flat doesn't want to go to it. He finds them <laughs> sort of embarrassing and not a good representation of what poetry is on the page. And she's she's stunned. Like, you know, City Lights is such an institution and Ferlinghetti is, you know, kind of one of the last living members of the 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 beats. And uh, and, and I wonder if that moment for you, what, what did you think that they could recover after that? Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's it's an old trope, but people say, oh, the, the characters just kind of told me that, you know, they wrote the story. But, you know, I've tried for every page you see on there, there's at least two that were tossed. And I've written those people. You know, I thought, like, maybe they should, you know, get rid of that or something. And it, it doesn't work. You, they'll, they'll, it just, you just keep taking the next step. You feel what's right. You know, you, you know these people as they actually are, are also born and evolve with you. And uh, it was clear to me that that was as far as they were, were going to go, uh, especially that that evening. And also um, it ends, right? That, that's the end of their evening. And she's she's kind of closed up and put them on a trolley and then go home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, uh, there's more, there's more. You can tell there's more. And they, because they have a, this common task of, of caring for Dorothy, and um, I think there's also a lot of growth still in their, their connections. You know, um, I can't tell you exactly why for a moment I wrote their dialogue as a script. You know, it's a he, she, he, she. Mm -hmm. um, that's this evolving filmic nature that the, the, the book eventually, you know, it's ending and, and something else, someone else's part and vision. Um, and it, it really kicked into place for me at that uh, dinner they had. So I, I think there is, that's another indication that things were growing forward. To me, I knew they had more to say, and I was just going to keep pushing until I found out. So uh, Dorsey, uh, in her, in, in her um, process of treatment and support, ends up in conflict with Jim over the idealism and realism that comes in when you think about a bad health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Jim comes to see that his daughter needs to see her life in terms of a finite amount of time. And, and Jim wants a miracle that comes mm -hmm. from, from fighting. Mm -hmm. And the novel ultimately seems to side with Dorothy and it presses Jim to allow her to script her own life and, mm -hmm. and perhaps her possible dying. Mm. I'm interested in how these warring philosophies on health and illness made their way into Outer Sunset. <sighs> um, well, there's also, I, I had, um, I have a, a sister-in-law who passed from this cancer. And I also, at the same time, had a, uh, a close friend in another group that I'm part of also die of it. It's a, it's a, this cancer in particular, I think is horribly brutal because, um, uh, it basically you're, you're just unable to take in nutrition. You're slowly, you know, shutting down as that happens with most, I guess, but you're clear as a bell. Um, so both of these women were able to talk with me as if, I mean, I just, the, this one, one of them who passed, I just had a normal lunch with her the week before it was strange. And, um, mm. 
So there's, and when you talk to these people and the situation, I've been around a lot of sick people, um, people, uh, yeah. death and illness is not a big strange thing to me. I've also worked in a nursing home when I was young and a couple other places. You, you, you hear from folks that what most of the people who are very strong and intellectually all there will not want to fool around and uh, waste time with daydreams. If there's a certainty, a medical certainty that they know and they're sharing with you, you're showing them the best respect and care you can to meet them there rather than leaving them adrift to, you know, have to face the truth alone while you take care of whatever you need to for yourself with the story, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel that uh, I was I was probably struggling in those those moments as well with the two points of view. You can't write something and have it emotionally true without, you know, investing in, and being it stake yourself while you're doing that. And I think I certainly was in those moments. And I don't want to say, you know, my kids are both perfectly healthy. I can't imagine anyone getting sick. I don't want to. Uh, but if I were in that situation, how would this feel? What would I do? And what would they say to me? Um, and uh, there's a lot. There's a lot there, right? You're learning this person's character so profoundly um, and, and your differences, um, which are so difficult to take in, especially with relationships as close as family. Boy, it's I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yeah, and I didn't. I have to say, it 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 really did feel like it rang true. I, my my children are are healthy and well, but uh, I was imagining myself in in Jim's place and and wondering the struggles that I would have and the things that would be really difficult for me. And and I think I would have the same difficulties as Jim, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. I you know uh, at the book launch, um, I was in conversation with a, a fellow writer named Becca Handler. Uh, and uh, she, she has kids too, and we were talking about that. And it's funny, we're you know when they're little, you fear for the worst almost every day. I mean, you just yeah, see them yeah. eat things in outlets, you know, and playing with sharp knives and what. But um, when they're older, you know, it's uh, what 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 could happen. And um, I in that the years that I was writing this, I I saw what could happen. You know, I, I my sister in laws, um, I know her mother as well, and saw what she was living through. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's something worth exploring. I think I think um, it's important to face truths, um, 
and but not wallow. Uh, so um, hopefully I managed that. Uh, you certainly did. And uh, I, I want to turn to one of my favorite characters in the novel. Uh, I think it's pronoun- is it pronounced Xenia? Xenia. Like a, yeah, almost like a KS at the, at the front of that. Okay, Xenia. Um, and... and- and Xenia is uh, is Jim's son's Ukrainian girlfriend. She's a, a bit older than him, uh, and, and and very interestingly, she adheres to an Orthodox faith, and ends up taking Jim to pray over a saint's sancti- sanctified body. Hmm. And she prompts in Jim this question of whether religion or living in a religious way can be a powerful thing for the non-religious, which I thought hmm. was a was a really interesting question to have fall into this novel about how much we feel uh, out of control when there's um, when there's an illness or or someone is dying, and and I wondered if you could say a little bit about how that idea of religion lives in the novel. Well, with with her, first of all, um, it's important to I want to note that as she's Ukrainian, but this is Ukrainian um, at the turn of the century, so. This she's she's coming from a culture that had very very limited exposure to the West, not even you know television and, and pop music. It was a different world. Um, I can't recommend enough uh, a book by uh, Svetlana Alexievich. It's called Secondhand Time, and it's almost first person narrations throughout seven hundred pages of people's stories who've grown up in various places in Russia and Ukraine and other places and. Just did, she the no- did she win the Nobel Prize? Is that yes, she did. She did. Okay. It's a fantastic book, and uh, was recommended to me by a Russian friend. That perspective just well, it just made me understand. You, you never know what's going to come. I, 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 you know, I, I don't talk about Putin's war, for instance, with my Russian friends or Ukrainian friends because there's still so many nuances that I'm never going to understand. I mean, to me, obviously, what's going on is is wrong. But then there's so many things that are both sides, and it's as as, as freighted as. Uh, the uh, Israeli uh, Gaza issue. So religion, she is, um, she's a true believer in what I've, I found with my friends. I myself, uh, uh, I joined the Orthodox Church of America, which is not uh, an ethnic church. It's a, I was born uh, Roman Catholic and then um, became an Eastern Catholic 20 years ago, which is this weird cusp. And yeah, I've never even you. heard, I've never heard of it. <laughs> Actually, Byzantine, I was a Russian Byzantine Catholic at that time. So, <laughs> But we can do that elsewhere. You know, it's too much story for here. But uh, it's an every it's a different kind of faith where you're there's no say divorce between matter and spirit. This is huge for me. This is post enlightenment. I see Senia saying something that she believes. That's also something she feels and does. There's a, a purity of intention and execution. There's a real true. It's a different sort of faith than I was raised with. There's no. You do this to get that ticket so you can go to heaven later kind of deal. It's about becoming a fully spiritual, uh, you know, bringing divinity right into life every day. And I found her a perfect foil to Jim um, because she's so embodied to me. I feel that she's very uh, holistic about everything. And her frustration with him it was hard for her to even mask, you know? I mean, she's far more frustrated with him than she is any other part of American life, including the language, you know? She's just very much in place. She's she's at home here. But um, he's he's a, a nanny in some ways. And so I don't even think she probably expected him to pray, but to bring him into that place and that, that St. John of Shanghai really 
you know, this is, uh, as uh, Alex are there, he's, it's real. Um, he's called the wonder worker. People go and uh, leave petitions and, you know, some of them are, are granted. It's, uh, a daunting and no joke environment. So to bring him in there, um, I, I give him kudos for having the audacity to follow her in, you know, because it's it's not easy. And then to be there, um, I did him good, I think. So when he goes later on his own, um, if you read that closely, and that was a very difficult chapter for me to write, he just runs through almost every line, every story he's able to, to pitch. I mean, this is a man who's finally running out of narrative resources. He's just going to He's, uh, less flatteringly, I could say he's pulling his, his head out the rear end of his own self narration <laughs> by the end of the book. And that's important. And, uh, that's something that having a true spiritual life and some challenges and, uh, an inability to push off what's not every day will bring to you. I, I want to think a second about Dorothy's filmmaking. When we first meet her, she's making um, a commercial, I think, for retirement investments. Is that right? Uh, let's let's think of it as an HR film. HR film. Okay. Staff yeah. About retirement. Yeah. Uh, that Jim is sort of a, a somewhat unwitting star of. But once she has her diagnosis, Dorsey will begin making a film that ends up drawing in all of her family and their web of connections and a dog. Uh, it becomes the one thing that she feels she must finish if should she only have three months to live. <laughs> In the end, art and family are what remains for her. Why and how did art become so central to Dorothy's exploration of the end of her life? Well, so your earlier question, you're referring to um, her being, you know, just very close to the truths of her medical condition where Jim was more like, you know, hoping for a miracle. And I don't think that with her movie, which isn't that exciting a movie in a way, I mean, you know, it's not a Fellaini film. So it's, it's, you know, art is so essential. The older I get, the more important it is to me. I certainly during COVID, we read like castaways. I don't know what we would do without our library and the ability to stream films. Uh, it's so essential, and I can see someone in her position who had been probably putting aside her creative work through most of her career in order to live. You know, that career, by the way, is about to be challenged by the you know, the advent of digital. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that she would adapt with that, um, but uh, it's still, it still was a, a field that she couldn't make a living with unless she was doing corporate work, you know, just like many of us did. You know, like a, I was a copy editor for an accounting firm to get through grad school. Yeah, so it, mirror, think, it mirrors um, Jim's interest in Wallace Stevens' life as a as an insurance claim man. Yes, 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 it does. It does. There's a lot of uh, echoing rhyming actions. That's what Charles Baxter calls him. So I, I would say that she's postponed art so long, and that she finds out she's got this limited time, and this is something that I'm sure is taking her mind off. I mean, obviously, just you don't want to sit around and just count your pills all day, and. Um, uh, I, I was very, uh, and I think it, it stirred him as well to take different things more seriously than he had before. So, um, I see it functioning in all those ways. Mm -hmm. There's uh, some really beautiful moments that describe Jim's life as a teacher. 
Mm. His, in particular, his relationship to an immigrant high school student, Pavel, uh, yeah. opens up for us something at the heart of the novel, that mm. meeting people where they are in their lives and trying to see them without a veneer of judgment is maybe the most difficult thing, but perhaps the most precious thing that we can do. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about Pavel and Jim's teaching life and, and how that factored into this kind of development of a sense of, you know, what's a, what's a well-lived life? Mm. Mm. That's well said. Um, uh, first of all, Pavel, I've never been a teacher because I am not that unselfish. I just, I know gifted teachers I've been I've benefited so much from uh, profoundly caring uh, teachers, especially in my public schools. Um, but um, I did substitute for a while, and I also used to go on all the field trips when my kids were in school. So there was I knew a Pavel that, as a first or second grader, who was just a wild boy and who really took to me. And we spent the whole day on this very lengthy, complex field trip that involved ferries and buses and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and so I imagined him older. Um, and I know, you know, I've had that the, the kind of relationship with younger people, either if you've worked as a camp counselor or anything like that. So there's that, that um, there's a bond there, of a definite understanding. I was um, thinking about how for, for Jim, having a relationship with Pavel ultimately ends up sort of meeting him where he is and his life yes. and trying to see him without all the judgments about you're not a good student and you're, you're talking about everything except what we need to talk about. And yeah. what, uh, what does this idea of non-judgmentalness, um, how does that kind of factor into this teaching part, but then kind of bloom into the rest of the novel? I think, you know, that, that non-judgmenting, non-judgmentalness, well, let's just call it love sometimes, right? It's, you're meeting somebody, um, without your fists up and you're listening and you're seeing and um and it's it's reciprocal um mm. and in this case remember the the boy's father's ill uh with cancer so there's a bond that they share there as well yeah yeah um but when i was writing the book many times i thought like who wants to read this man's story you know like i it began as a, a story that i didn't like the guy myself in in some ways and so mm. um how you know how do you keep this open and moving. I want to understand him. I want to understand uh, the changes that he's going through and what he needs to go through and how he's going to do this. And I think that whenever he gets surprised by people like Pavel, and they are they're the very, um, or Xenia or Carol, you know, it's just, it gets under his, his thinking. It gets under his um, stories that he's telling himself and it gets him engaged without any uh, barriers you know this is a, a if you piece together his childhood and all of the loss and suffering and and even the the instability of you know maybe his own physical condition and uh, and where he lives in san francisco on this sandy sandy place um it's probably hard i thought it was hard for him to let down but yet also easier than it would be say if you know it were me in a brick house in the middle of ohio you know it's just a, yeah, a different yeah, yeah. world and uh so that's 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 where that comes from i think when you especially it's easier with kids um i think despite what he says about his teaching career and what a phony he felt like sometimes i'm sure he was a it was a good guy he's a good teacher sound like he was getting something across it seemed like it uh and yeah. and you know the the students take to him in in various ways and he seems yes. an important figure for them yes 
Um, I, before I let you go, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit about what you've been reading recently and whether you'd like to recommend some things for my listeners. Always. And in fact, um, I knew that question would come up, so I had to write down some titles. I've been going right. through so many books. <laughs> uh, it's hard to remember sometimes, but I've got three. That's that my I've... favorite thing. So <laughs> <laughs> Good. I will start with, I really enjoyed... Uh, none of these are super new. One, well, one is, uh, I th- had not read much Joy Williams before, um, mm. but I she's picked up, cool. she's really something, huh? And I picked up Harrow because mm. I'm something of a environmentalist and I really, it's been called cli-fi climate fiction, you know, and I'm not sure that that's going to last as a genre idea. I think that everything we're reading and writing right now is, is reflecting the, the collapses that we're seeing around us. And, um, no, that's so what I loved about hers. Uh, it's it's uh, a very, in a way, it's a difficult book to read and to talk about. But um, if you just look at the first three pages, it's just this introductory paragraph or ch- uh, chapter, and it ends with a line that just that just I it just choked me up. It just caught me, and it's a it's you know it's almost surreal the book, but there's something very potent going on here, and it has to do with her strong wit and amazing um, ability to just cast a a spirit over a moment. It's just, uh, I think it's a great book and I'm planning to reread it so I can talk better about it next mm. I, year. I haven't read it, but it was, it was certainly on my list. It, w- did it come out two years ago or last I year? I think it's a 2020, let's say. 2020. Oh gosh, the compression yeah. of time. It's one of those, you know, it's probably done 2021. There you 2021. go. 2021. Okay. But, you know, people are either finishing things during COVID or getting them out during COVID and you don't quite get there until it's, you know, in your face. But I, I have a three recommendation rule in my house that usually three friends will get, you know, by the time I've got that third recommendation, I'll read. And uh, that was one. Um, Another book that I very much loved. um, And my wife will uh, agree with me here. It's called Gordo, G-O-R-D-O by uh, Jaime Cortez. He's a local San Francisco writer. This is a very unusual collection of stories and that it's a world you don't know about. It's uh, uh, set in the uh, farm camps um, in the Salinas Valley, actually Watsonville. Uh, and it's a little boy's point of view most often. And he's also uh, becoming aware that he's gay at the same time. The stories are full of so much love and family and uh, humor, laugh out loud humor. Uh, we saw him read and he was he's, he's a really great reader as well so that's we picked up the book i can't recommend that one enough too oh that sounds great i don't know it at all oh good well you're in for a treat and then the other is a holiday uh uh read okay because it's uh coming up on that time of year and this is an old favorite of mine that i read almost every year um it's last night at the lobster by Stuart onan and um it's a short novel you can almost read it in one sitting and set out four days before Christmas. It's a, a, like a, a span of 24 hours. And it's for anybody who's ever had a heartache at, or heartbreak at Christmas time, worked in a restaurant, um, had to deal with slush and bad weather with big cars. And, and it was just, I really, I finished it again just yesterday. And uh, I, I really do love it. That that sounds wonderful. And I know Stuart Onan, but I, I don't, don't know last night at the Lobster. And it sounds perfect it's, for, for holiday. Yeah, it's like I think it's like 15 years old too, but I um I really recommend that. 
Oh, that's yeah, uh, great. Blurred me too. So I, I love people who blur me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got some great blurbs on, and people I really respect and like on on Outer Sunset, and I want to make. And, and oh yeah, Julia Glass is amazing, and um, you've got Valerie Sayers. So I just want to make sure that people run out and get Outer Sunset. It's such a magnificent book. It, it both lives inside one man's head, but it reaches outward, and that's what I love about it. It's it's uh, a tale of someone trying to get their arms around how to to love and be even when things are dark, and so I. I just can't encourage my listeners enough to get Outer Sunset by Mark Ernest Pothier. Thank you very much, Chris. This was a real pleasure. It was such a nice thing to have you on the show, and I will be looking for more of your work. Thank you. Thank you. I'll keep listening. Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Mark Pothier for coming on the show to talk about his debut novel, Outer Sunset. You can find links to purchase Outer Sunset and all of Mark's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details